Conversations on the Margins is a Go Loud original podcast. The following episode contains strong language, mentions of drug use, violence and suicide. Discretion is advised. You can wait. You can wait for me. My mistakes. I'm in a place where I belong. I'm ashamed. Yet a taste of defeat is the same as it was at the start. Jamie is a young lad, one of the youngest on the podcast, not the youngest, but one of the youngest. I think he's in and around mid-twenties. And he first approached me on the corridor when I was going out to get one of the other lads. And he was like, miss, you know, what are you doing in there? And told him a little bit about what we're doing. And he's like, can I get involved? So I spent a little bit a little bit of time talking to him first because so many of the men that came on the podcast had done lots of workshops with us. So I wanted to be make sure that obviously anyone that came on much later understood what was happening. So I told him to come back tomorrow. But I remember just going back into the production team and I was like, oh, this young lad, I'm at to be talking to him. He's, he's so lovely. But what struck me most about him, he had these beautiful piercing eyes and he obviously has his mask on, which is covering the rest of his face and he just had these amazing eyes and there was such a, an innocence to his character and he was so mannerly and polite and when he came back in the next day he sat down on front of us to talk and he was just so calm and relaxed probably one of the most relaxed actually out of all the lads and he just was really sweet and really has big plans for when he leaves prison in terms of just stepping away from I suppose a life of ending up in and out of the prison system. He was definitely one of the the, the most handsome young men that sat in front of me throughout the podcast. Take me home, take me away from this place, I feel so alone. Hard to escape yourself, I need to go It gives me a headache when I feel my heartache It's all due to heart break It's all due to heart break From a young age, a group of ADHD um, Started going to see a psychologist at the age of five And I stopped seeing him when I turned 18 he said it was 80% bone in my system, which it's still there, it's just not as bad as I was younger. So yeah, I grew up in a council estate, not really much to do around the place, uh, got into crime young, started doing started doing drugs at about 14, uh, kind of just went on from there, came to prison when I was 17, uh, didn't really have a good background with my parents, um, came to prison, just kind of got stuck in the same cycle, but I know, I know now that I'm 25, I know only reason I'm getting stuck in the same cycle is because I need to get away from fraud and get away from the certain people I hang around with. And How hard is it to do that? To just Because it's not easy to just go, well, I'm just going to live wherever. Like, how yeah, well, hard is it to I'm, actually I'm after that? changing everything now. So there's a, a scheme in here called Trail. It's a housing scheme. So I've been all over them since... I've been all, I started looking for Trail in January 2020. Oh, sorry, that's uh, January 2021. Um, I speak to Peter McFerry on the phone every week um, just to kind of explain myself, check up on him, have a little chat with him. Um, yeah, so I'm waiting for Trail to come and see me. Um, I've been doing good in the prison system. Came, I first came to this prison in 2015 when I was 17. Um, I'd done 16 months, I had to do 12 out of it. And I was a bit rough back then, I'm not going to lie, because uh, obviously St. Patrick's got closed down, so there was two landings here for under-21s. And as, as a young fellow from Drawler, um, 
on a landing full of Dublin young fellas was a bit imitating, I'm not going to lie. Talk to me a little bit about that because you're not actually the first person to say that, yeah. that coming into a prison in Dublin is surrounded by dubs is is it is, is an experience in and of itself. Where does yeah. that come from? What is that about? It's just, I don't know, it's just egos or it's just, oh, he's not from the same area we're from, this is Dublin jail and, and stuff like that. But as I said, you just have to get along with I got along with some of the lads I didn't get along with some of the lads. The lads I didn't get on with, I just didn't speak to. So it was kind of all right. Um, you hear a lot of stories on the outside when you're young about prison, so you're kind of scared the first time coming in. But I have to say, I was only for the first month or two that it was kind of scared because I had to get on my feet and I didn't know what was going to happen. Going out to the yards for the first time and... And Tell me about that experience, actually, because we've not... It's overwhelming. You know, yeah, because a lot of people, like, have this perception of prison, right? Yeah. And one is the yard, you know? Yeah. Like, people that have never been here or they see it on films and stuff, like American yeah. American uh, prison films, you know? The yeah. yard is always featured so much. But what is it actually like to be a young person and be in a prison and with a lot of older men yeah. um, and walking out into that kind of yard space that's much freer than being, I suppose, in the cell or the landing? What's yeah. that? What's that like? It's a... Uh, not going to lie to you, it's a bit intimidating when you're young and you're around a lot of older lads and they're twice the size you and you find out that this lad's doing a life sentence or this lad's doing 10 years, you kind of get a bit scared, you know what I mean? You don't. The way I was when I was younger, I just kind of stayed away from them type of people. Like, if you haven't got a good head on your shoulders, like, you will get yourself into trouble. Like, I'm lucky enough now, I grew up around certain fellas that's a bit older than me, so I have a bit of a head on my shoulders, so. But for a young lad to come in, like, just, just for example, like a young lad from the country that was never into crime before and his mum and dad have the best jobs in the world, like, it'd be tough for him because he doesn't know the ins and outs. I kind of grew up in a, a council estate street, or council estate street, so I know the ins and outs of crime and all things from all the lads, but if for a young lad to come in from the country, from the back ass of nowhere, basically, he's going to find it tough and he'd probably say something he shouldn't say or something like that, so um, I've seen it happen. I've seen young lads come in at a young age and talk out of school about something. Uh, a chap will tell him something on the landing and he'll go and say it back to someone else, which he shouldn't. I've seen young lads getting 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 beatings over super stuff like that, but um yeah. So do yeah. you have to how much energy do you have to use up in prison to be harder than you are to kind of um so that people can't see your fear? Do you have to put a lot of energy into pretending to be tougher than you actually want to be? If if you ask me, I just be myself. Like people are only gonna like you for the for the way you are, you know what I mean? A lot of people do come in and they have this pride and they have a face, but um it's a different story when you're out on the landing or you're out in the yard. When you go back into that cell, I've seen I've seen it with people that when you're in a cell with them, they're cool as can be, they're calm. As soon as the door opens, they're, they're hyped up, they're saying, oh, this and that. They go out to the yard, as soon as they come back in, they're back to normal again. Like, it's, it's prison, prison's prison, man. People are only going to look if you who you are, you know what I mean, Lynn? Uh, there's no point in putting a face on because you could put a face on and another lad come in, could come in for your area and say, oh, you could be telling someone stories, you could be lying and some lad can come in from your area and it can all turn around you, then the people are going to dislike you because they probably liked you at the start and now someone comes in from your area and starts talking and you're a lawyer to them then, so they're not going to associate with you. Mm, so being honest in prison be, is Being important. honest is the best policy. Yeah, Being honest in, in life in general is the best way to be. Okay. Yeah. So when, 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 you, when you get out of here, you have big plans to kind of step away uh, from... I have my life in order now. I've, I've, I'm ready to go, man. I'm 25 now. I came to prison. I'm in and out of prison since I'm 17. I'm moving away from the whole scene of Drawda. It took me for a long time. I says, oh, Drawda, Drawda's the problem. But only now now it's me that's the problem. It's not Drawda. I'm just blaming Drawda. So, uh, yeah, hopefully. I'm just waiting to see Trail. I have a lot of things written down. Brilliant. Um, I only seen Katie Wallace. She's a resentment officer yesterday. So, uh, 
things are looking good. They were supposed to come in and see me before Christmas, but there was a shortage of starts, so they got turned away at the prison. So it was a bit, it was a bit annoying. I'm not gonna lie. I was over in Eastwing there for a while. I ended up getting getting done for Euroin, so I'm back on HG now. Okay. So uh, I've only four months left, so hopefully they come in and see me soon. Okay. So big plans. You're gonna big plans. be honest. Yeah. Step away and... Um, I'm always honest. That's why some people like me and some people don't like yeah. me. Like, there's no one in between with me. Right, are you ready? I left you this morning Couldn't take any more You left and you dared me To walk out the door That I come back You knew what I do And you know you were right Cause I'm back here tonight Begging to you So Sarah Jane, thanks so much for coming in today. Um I know I've told you a little bit about the podcast, but I suppose why I think it's important for um, somebody from uh, the the Penal Reform Trust to be part of this conversation is as well. There's obviously there's many different angles, but mostly the conversation with the lads in prison is very much a life. You know, it's the the love, loss, death. You know, opportunities, choices mental health, fatherhood, just all the normal things that every single other person engages with in their daily life. And for me, the podcast was about trying to um, open um, people's hearts and minds and compassion to other humans who, um, in some cases, haven't done things that any of us would would agree with doing. And, and sometimes people can find that conflict inside them difficult to forgive or how we punish people or when we allow people to stop being punished. And the work, I suppose, of the Penal Reform Trust has been so very heavily, I suppose, based on increasing capacity within prisons in terms of human rights, in terms of um, sentencing, you know, it's such a wide range. And I know through my own work separately to this, the Penal Reform Trust has been um, huge in helping me develop um policies around say like spent convictions and well done on that thank you (laughs) so what I realized though when I was in having conversations with the lads is that there's so much talent Mm -hmm. and there's so much effort into say increasing some of the lads uh, ability with business and literacy and the playing of instruments and um, different um, skills with their hands and um, even doing the open university and even though I think that that's something that needs to be resourced, supported and encouraged, there's also a part of me that's a little bit um, sad by it because there's a part of me that thinks who's going to allow them then to utilise those skills when they leave yeah. prison, mm. you know. And I suppose what I'd love to hear from from you is because you've also worked and maybe you might give us a little bit of insight to I know you worked with Anna Liffey before. Uh, you were with the Penal Reform Trust and I know like you'd have the same insights as myself to the amount of people that are in prison in relation to drug use that shouldn't be in prison. So on one hand, you have people that will come out that uh, try and educate themselves while they're in there and then nobody will give them an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then you have the people that never should have been in there in the first place, um, especially for the likes of drug use. Yeah. 
Um, so I'd love to hear like just your thoughts in general on, on that type of stuff. Yeah, well, I'm just going to start by complimenting the podcast because, you know, we kind of have a difficult line to tell in IPRT that we're trying to kind of figure out. And I suppose what that is, is we're obviously penal policy and our remit is around, you know, making sure that the prison system upholds best practice and human rights. And the voices are very important in that. But also it's a lot of standards and we speak in standards and we speak in like, you know, conditions in the prison and regimes. And I suppose like when I came in in May, like I wasn't the first person to realise that, you know, we wanted to include the voices more. And that's why we get a lot of external funding to do kind of like qualitative research in the prisons. But the PIPS project, which is our kind of main like flagship project, you know, that's not really focused as much on the voices. It's focused on the standards because we're really just constantly trying to, you know, review what's being done in terms of policy and just, you know, push it to change. And it, I suppose it doesn't leave a lot of room for going in and doing like qualitative interviews on that side of it. So this is really important. And I know that the PIPS advisory group, when I came in in May, were like, we need to include the voices this year. And I was like, I know. But again, COVID and then there wasn't any time. So what we did do is like we interviewed a few people and we got a chance to interview three. You probably saw the quotes throughout the PIPS report. But again, it didn't really... It, it didn't make up like the bulk of the PIPS report. So I just think this is a fantastic project. I just have to compliment it. And it's really supportive of us and kind of our direction now because whereas we don't, we don't have the capacity probably to do that piece of work along with the work we're already doing, we can use it to steer PIPS, which is really, really important. So that's brilliant. But with the with what you're saying there around, there's a few things that you said there, but one of them like, like that really struck me was around the skills that they gain in prison and all of the talents and the skills that they already have while in prison. One of the people that I interviewed, like, he spoke about something and I remember just being really, really taken aback by it. And it was this, that when he was in prison, something as simple as woodwork. He learned woodwork and he learned um, just like basic carpentry. And that when he got out of prison, so previous to prison, he was probably in a position where he had a lot of money from, you know, whatever uh, path that he had to go down. Went into prison for a long period of time, came out, had to face into fatherhood again, you know, didn't really know his kids, didn't really have many visits from his kids, wasn't living with his kid's mother moved back home and was trying to pursue education while getting drawn into the world of, you know, you know, drug selling and all that sort of stuff as he was before because he had no money. Um, he's on social welfare and he goes to his kids, his kids, I think it was his birthday party or something and he didn't have any money like to buy a present. So he just felt, you know, he felt like I haven't been a part of the life for a very long time and now I'm coming here and I don't have any money to buy them a present. And he felt kind of, I suppose, just like less, like less of a father for And I was like, I kind of really like felt that when he was saying it. But then what happened was he realised that when he looked around his, um, his, I think it was his ex, maybe they were back together, I'm not sure, he didn't specify, that the, her flat hadn't been cared for in a very long time. And there was lots of things like cupboards were broken and like just lots of bits were broken in, in the flat. So he was like, I, I actually have the skill to fix these now. So he went around and he, he was like a handyman and he fixed everything in our flat and he felt like he had purpose, like he was part of the family, like he was able to like feel like a father and feel like a provider, you know, through that skill. So you're saying like, I, I worry about them coming out with all these new skills and, you know, they haven't got like an opportunity to then use them. I completely agree. <laughs> There's so many barriers to them, like using those skills, but they're still important because they actually give them a sense of esteem in, in other arenas. And I just thought that was so powerful. Yes. And when he told me that, like I went in to interview this guy and I remember thinking like, this is the stuff that he's going to talk about because I, I kind of knew who he was and stuff like that and what he was about. And I never expected like that that kind of particular thing would come out of it. Like I didn't think life skills was going to be one of the most important standards in prison when I when I went into that interview. But when I came out, I was like, life skills is going into the PIPs report this year. Like life skills is so important in prison. Mm. They all are. So 
like I suppose it comes back to like that's how important people's voices are and it's how important that they like that they actually steer our policy work because I have my own ideas of what they need and IPRT has their own ideas and we all have our own ideas but it's only when you talk to people that you kind of realise actually it's things that you don't even think of that are so important that actually really change people's lives and relationships and like how he now interacts with his family you know that kind of way mm-hmm. so anyway sorry you just brought up something on them um, life skills and, and using them outside prison and that's that story yeah, came without straight to my even, head uh, it, it's perfect actually yeah. because what it's reminded me of is one I think he was probably the eldest of of the lads that we worked with um, in, in, in the school and he um, the skills that he gained are uh, mindfulness skills and what I thought was amazing about engaging with him was um, you know the way like so I wanted to ask him big questions like your what are your plans when you leave like what are your hopes what are your aspirations but for him it was like well, I've been teaching my granddaughter mindfulness when I get to talk to her on the phone. I think he said she was 14. I'd, yeah. I'd have to check the age. So his teenage granddaughter, he's teaching her mindfulness. That's amazing. Right? <laughs> and he's not thinking about the big things when he gets out, right? Yeah. Like a job or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. It's like my, do- my granddaughter has been going to the Port Marnock Beach and she brings her gemstones and her crystals and a picture of me. And I'm just going to go and sit on the beach with her and do mindfulness with her. And that is the stuff. You just don't be expecting that stuff to come at you, you know. Mm. But then I don't not expect it either, you know. But what I also thought was amazing about what he said was the, uh, the ways that people in prison try and find ways to connect with the people that they love, even when they've been away from them for 10, 15, 20 years in the physical sense, yeah. right? So he created this mental kind of connection between him and the granddaughter so that at half nine every night, she does her mindfulness meditation and he does his. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I know. That's so lovely. And that's how they yeah. connect gorgeous and he had this wonderful philosophy on them types of things so it's like there's the life skills but then there's these other skills and he doesn't have to figure out how he's going to buy something or pay for something he's literally connecting with her through the skill of mindfulness and that's why that's where i get back to kind of we miss those small details because we're focused on the wider policy issues like mental health drugs you know time out of cell time and like these are all massive issues and because we're focused on them because they're obviously so important we forget about all the other little things that actually long term are going to make such a difference to people and their connections with their family because like fundamentally family like we all know how important it is whether it's your family that you're born into or whether it's a family that you find along the way like connections and relationships are so important and that comes back to the point that you had about touch like during the pandemic you had kids coming in you had like partners coming in obviously you didn't have kids coming in really because you're only allowed one child for so much of it but you had them coming in and you know screened visits masks and I know we all experienced that in a sense like we all had social distancing and you know we weren't allowed to hug each other but we could if we wanted to you know like in our bubbles we could hug and we could you know touch each other and you know we could warm up in bed with somebody or whatever you know Mm. whatever you know it is that your dynamic is with a person but like the only visit that you have is 15 to max a half an hour, you know, 15 minutes to max a half an hour. It's a it's a screen. It's a mask. So how can you actually even connect eye to eye or talk, see the facial expression? And then children not being able to hug. And uh, there was a story in one of our IPO. It came back. See, it's so interesting because you do so much research and, you, you know, you look up like kind of developments and policy. But it's the little things like this that really capture the heart and make you kind of remember why you're doing this work. <laughs> and it was a... It was just a line that came back from one of the IPRT surveys that we send out to the children and families. We do every year, kind of around June and July. 
And this year, I think it was the 2021, it was last July, it came back and it said, you know, that a child had thought that the dad didn't actually like them or wasn't talking to them because like, why won't they give me a hug? You know, like, so the child, like, can't understand, like, a young child can't understand that. Like, a young child, like, how do you explain to them, like, you know, daddy's in prison, he's not allowed to touch it. And you don't want to explain that to them. You don't want to kind of create that sense of, you don't want fear and, like, you know, strangeness for them when they're going in to visit. You want to make it as comfortable as possible. You want to go, we're just going to go see daddy, you know. So the child then comes up with their own because you're not explaining it to them or because the parents don't have the skills to explain it in a way that protects the child and, like, protects their well-being. The child is going in with not enough information they're getting searched when they're coming in, you know, um, <laughs> like that's the reality. They're going through an airport scanner um, and then they're sitting down behind a perplex, a perplex scale. See, I, there's words I can't pronounce. How do you say that plastic. word? Plastic. Plastic screen. <laughs> <laughs> a COVID plastic screen. And they're, um, they're wearing masks. Perspex. Perspex screen. There you have it. <laughs> and they're wearing masks and their their daddy can't hook them and they're just making up their own story about why that is, you know. Mm. And then like only for that child, obviously later, disclose that to the mother the mother was able to go oh no and explain of course daddy loves you but what about the children that don't tell, say that to their mums you know that kind of yeah, way yeah so you know in in I know um, obviously in user roles are looking at um, standards and human rights and mm-hmm. the exercising of those rights but when we think about um, families mm-hmm. and uh, children do they have any rights in relation to their access so this is the thing. <laughs> so yes, children absolutely have rights. So children have the right to family contact. Um, it's in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. The issue is that, you know, we haven't actually embedded that into our country's legislation. So, you know, before Christmas, um, Ireland had to submit a draft report um, to the Committee on the Rights of the Child. And in that, you know, there was no mention of children and prisoners. So that's where IPRT do our piece of work. So we made a submission to the draft state report and we said, look, it's a very good report. <laughs> you mentioned a lot of really important things, but there's no mention of children or prisoners. They have a right to family contact. Can we can we put this in or can we even mention them in the state report, you know, which they weren't mentioned. They were left out. We have no support service for children or families of people in prison. And um, we have a few, like as in a national support service, sorry. We have a few very brilliant charities that do great work. Um, one in Limerick, Bedford Row. We have New Directions in Dublin. But again, like it's not a it's not a national support program. You know what I mean? They're they're very stretched, of course. You know what I mean for all the children that there are. Um, so even as a even as a when you think about child poverty, right? Yeah. And you think about um, the type of families that are impacted by prison and the type of communities that are more impacted by prison than other communities. And something that came up, I think I've walked away from all these with all these policy ideas from, yeah. the, from the last week, you know, <laughs> it's great. But one of them was the idea that um, so a, a, a lad in prison is paid 30 cent a day for the jobs that he does. So if he becomes like the, the you know, the cleaner or he's working in the kitchen or he's working in the laundry, they're paid 30 cent a day. Yeah. On the other side of that, then you have families that are struggling, that are minus an income. Right, I know what you're going to say, and I I said this right. Did you on, right? On. So, <laughs> and I'm looking at there going, yeah. and then I'm looking at the themes coming up, saying yeah. the men are like, I can't provide for my family. Mm-hmm. The the state is paying for me to be here. My wife or my girlfriend or my the mother of my children is now more reliant on social welfare than she was before I came in. And there's like so every household where there's a man in prison is down in income and down support. So like even 
like obviously paying everyone in a way that you either build up a bank of money for them for when they get out so yeah. they're not automatically um, this was Vin, I was out with Vincent Brown last night and he said Lynn we, we need to pay them properly in prison so that they have money when they get out mm-hmm. so that they're not automatically drawn into criminality to be able yeah. to pay for shelter or this type of stuff but the other side of that is that many women don't receive child maintenance from all the fathers mm-hmm. that are in prison Yeah. so in my head I was thinking well why can't we be paying uh, prisoners, um, even the minimum wage um, for the work that they do in prison so that they do feel like they're contributing yeah. to their family. So obviously some of it can be part of, you know, the money that they need in prison and the tuck shop or if they want to save or but that, but that there is an actual way to pay child maintenance for the roles that men take up in the prison system. It's so interesting that you're saying that. And I actually, it didn't go into our submission to the Irish prison rules in the end. But So IPRT have what's called the Action for Children and Families of Prisoners Network. And that is in conjunction with University College Cork. So it's kind of a a co-chaired network. And on our side, um, there was a submission to go into the Irish prison rules, the review of the prison rules. IPRT made their own submission and the network made a very short submission. And as I was going through all the prison rules, um, something that actually came up was, hang on, where does this money go? So they can either bank the money till they get out, which they can do, which is very little money as well, might I add. It's very little. Um, it's definitely not enough. Um, and then the other thing that they can do is spend it in the tuck shop. You know what I mean? So that was kind of the two things I think that mm. that happened that could happen to the money. And I was saying to myself, OK, you can transfer money into the prison. Why can't you trans- money, transfer money out? So the, the fathers in prison feel a sense of like being able to be a provider. You know, it's really important for their self-esteem. It's really important for their engagement with their family. It's really important for the mothers on the on the other side to, you know, <laughs> hello. <Yeah. laughs> because they have to travel to and from prison. They have to take time off work to go visit people in prison. Like they have to ch- take care of a child on their own now or more than one child on their own. Many children sometimes. So like it doesn't, it didn't make any sense. There was a reason why I didn't go into the submission and it was very operational and it was very technical and I can't remember the reason. Yeah. But it was something to do with the technical operational side of the IPS and something beyond my understanding a little bit. Mm. So I would be very delighted if you would look into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be a great no, policy opportunity. And I think it's not even coming yeah. from me. It was like these stuff are coming from the men themselves. Yeah. And yeah. I just think that it shows why it's so important to involve uh, people who are impacted Absolutely. by policy in policy development. Mm. Because there's so much about where the conversations that will come up on the podcast where you can see things that need to change and logical things, not outrageous things, like really just obvious yeah. stuff that makes sense. Um, but to to move on from that a little bit, something that came up um, uh, a little bit as well is uh, the idea now, right, that so say if you 20 years ago received a life sentence yeah, and 20 years ago, that life sentence would have you would have expected maybe 14 years in prison and then, you know, release into the community mm-hmm. or on license and stuff. But. As um, as society changes and as sentencing guidelines change, mm-hmm. something seems to be retrospective then. Mm-hmm. So if you received a, prison, a life sentence 20 years ago and you were expected to do 14 years and now in society you're suspected to do 25. Yeah. It retrospectively applies to you even though you weren't sentenced under those life Okay. sentence guidelines is yeah. that something that now I've not looked into this to see the, 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 to see what legislation or policy supports that but that's some of their experiences some of the lads that are doing life sentences is that it's getting longer and longer and longer and longer that's very interesting yeah. you know, to be honest our membership would mostly be like IPRT's pris- in prison membership would mostly mostly be people who are uh, ex- 
carrying out long sentences or life sentences. And the reason for that is because it's not that thing of like they're in and out of prison so they can actually maintain their membership over a period of time and engage with all like I suppose us and you know, ring us up or like, you know, send in like responses to our surveys and stuff like that. So that's kind of what we would do with our members. And obviously when COVID's not around, we would visit our members as well. Um, and like something that does come up from from all of it, like it's always a recurring team, like top of the surveys is sentence management. Yeah. So just like a lack of communication around like what's happening with my sentence. Um, you know, not being able to kind of meet um anybody like in, in regards to like what's happening in, you know, in the next five years, like am I progressing and am I going into a progressive like part of the prison, like the living an independent living skills unit, or am I going to an open prison? Like just just a lack of communication. But that's actually never really come up now from like from since I started anyway, in yeah. the surveys or in the inquiries. But it is interesting to think that somebody that's served a really long sentence like they're sent, like served a really long sentence based on previous law or previous conviction mm-hmm. or previous, um, I suppose, what was the word? Sentencing like, guidelines. Like, yeah, sentencing guidelines now that would change. Now, it's, I suppose we have the sentencing, the sentencing guidelines and information committee now. So I don't know what's going to happen with them. Um, but it'd be interesting for them to look at that and see. But that mm. that is the other thing that came mm. up is that unknown piece. So yeah. what you're working towards, what, working what, towards. what you can mm. expect. Yeah. So this real, like this kind of <laughs> absence of time, right? Mm. So that, you know, you, you're living in this structured space where your meals are structured, your engagement with people is structured, your visits are structured, your showers are structured, everything is structured apart from this the information. Bit. Of information <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> or oh, progression. Yeah. So not having a structure on how you may progress mm-hmm. when something that you expect to happen in one year, then doesn't nobody comes back to you on it for two years, mm. you know, and it's like it's it, it, I would imagine me being in a prison set and going, how how do people actually manage to keep your sanity or keep your your willingness and your determination to be better and do better and learn more when on the other side of that is you have no idea if that's ever going to support mm. your exit out of prison. Yeah. And this comes into like, I suppose, like obviously it comes into the need for like communication around everything and especially sentence management. But it comes into the lack of open prison provision as well, because mm-hmm. that's such an important step. So even if like they, they're not receiving communication about like when their sentence is going to end completely, at least if they can, if they can know where I'm going to an open prison, like I'm in, I'm in a restricted prison now, like a regular type prison. I'm going to an open prison where, you know, I can actually engage in work. I can engage in employment, you know, engage in education. I can come in and out of the prison. Family visits are looser. A lot of them, I think, have access to phones and stuff like that. So it's kind of like a more, it's not ideal, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a better environment to live in. It's, it, it supports normalisation. If they even like had the opportunity to progress there, you know, that would be different. But we haven't got enough open prisons either. You know, mm. we only have two and then we haven't got one in Dublin and <laughs> um, we haven't got one for women. Um, so I suppose it comes back to that point of like the need for more open prisons, the need for more independent living skills. You know, and it's something else to progress to, just mm. something else uh, like along the way. And then also the need to know like like what's happening with your sentence. And I don't know where that, that disconnect is coming from. Maybe it's to do with maybe it's to do with probation and, you know, like the communication between probation and the, and the Irish prison service or communication between all the stakeholders because they're all involved in that, obviously. But like, it's an it's an issue that was, it wasn't flagged in this year's PIPs because we didn't focus on sentence management. But like, it comes into the whole piece that we did focus on, which is a lack of transparency, a lack of communication between stakeholders, but also between the prisoners and people, you know, and the people responsible for taking care of them. Mm. Um, and it's it's very disheartening, you know. So you mentioned uh, 
uh, IPRT's membership. Yeah. So it, talk us through a little bit, a little bit about what that means, like how how you what it means to be a member of IPRT while you're in prison. Yeah. So if you're a member of IPRT, I suppose your voice then influences how we you know carry out our policy work. So in a few different ways, before the pandemic, it was through visits to prisons where we'd actually get to talk to people in prison, like you are now, and like ask them, you know, what are your issues and like you know what do you think we should be focusing on in like next year's PIPs or what should we seek funding to look into or, you know, like just basically asking like what are the issues and letting them kind of drive the how we work. Um, also, it means that you and your family members can give us a ring. You can anyway, like IP, IPRT will always pick up the phone. Lorraine, our membership and governance officer will always pick up the phone. She's absolutely brilliant and we will, but like it's mostly Lorraine who does it these days. Um, but like it means that your family can ring and just kind of have a chat about what's going on and like get advice from us about, you know, where you should, who you should talk to. It's more where we refer it. Like we're not a service, like we're not a support service, but we do refer people to sources of information that might help them. Um, and then also like engage with like different projects. So like, you know, you'll be invited to any of the, the launches of the reports, you know, through the, like the members get like information about the launches of all our reports um, and also surveys that we carry out. Like we'll, you know, we'll send them to all of the members and stuff like that. So it is really important. It's an important opportunity to like have your voice represented in policy spheres if you're in prison. Uh, the issue is that our membership is mostly men and mostly long or life sentence prisoners, which is not a bad thing because obviously they're there the longest and they can speak to the prison probably better than anybody. But their issues are very different to people that are in and out of prison, you know, on short sentences. Because like, for example, if you're in and out on a short sentence, you probably care more about um, day-to-day things, like the day-to-day regimes of the prison or something like that. Um, now you probably you probably would if you're a life sentence prisoner too, but we find that life sentence prisoners care mostly about uh, sentence management, of course, what you brought up family contact you know because you're there for a very very long period of time a lot of the time you'd hear somebody if they're doing a short sentence they don't want their children to come and visit because they're like I'm only here for a few months and I don't want to expose my children to come and visit that's how people feel whereas if you're a life sentence prisoner you kind of have to adapt you know or if you're a long sentence prisoner so family visits would would matter to them what else would matter to their life sentence commute just contact with the outside world in general telephone calls video calls stuff like that you know progression in education um but like, whereas if you're a short sentence prisoner, it's very difficult to know what they need. We actually don't. We assume we know what they need. And we assume they need things like support around a lot of them probably coming in there on, you know, drugs charges or, you know, related offences. We don't know enough about that. We can get back to that probably later. But um, I suppose we don't know because they're not our members. Mm. And it's really difficult. So in terms of those longer term prisoners, mm. um, is there many um, or does it form any part of user work to look at um prisoners with disability. So is there many prisoners with disability, whether it be age related or whether it be pre-existing disabilities in terms of like wheelchair access, you know, yeah. any sort of, do, talk to us a little yeah. bit about So that. IPRT, I'm pretty sure it was published in 2019, actually carried out a piece of qualitative research um, where we kind of looked at access to human rights for people in prison with disabilities. And it was the the centre of disability law and policy in um National University of Galway, National University of Ireland, Galway. I always get that wrong, NUIG. And yeah, we did find that, you know, there was a huge issue around, I suppose, the definition of a disability was a big one as well, you know, because mental health, you know, falls into that in in many ways. And I suppose that wasn't flagged because people, when they think disability, they think physical disability, which is clearly like it's very much an issue um, with people in prison but also it's it's health it's just physical health issues that they might experience as well as well as mental health and you know 
you have special or safety observation cells. So people who, you know, experience like bouts of, you know, like really severe mental health, they would be held in safety observation cells. And again, like that's infringing on their rights even more because it's essentially, you know, a really nice version of solitary confinement. You know, well, I say a really nice version. We don't actually know how nice it is, but, you know, it's it has windows and, you know, it's it's more comfortable, I suppose, than solitary confinement. And it's where people can be taken care of and checked in on and made sure that, you know, they're, they're being looked after. But we have very little information on the lengths of time that people are actually being kept in those safety observation so cells. Is, is, is the likes of when you speak there about, say, people who are having those, like, um, I suppose, quite serious um uh, issues with mental health, yeah. right? And we know there's an issue with people ending up in the prison system that have mental mm-hmm. health issues. Um, so where does that problem begin? Is that, do we look at then at uh, the judiciary? Do we look at the fact that why, like, so the prison can only deal with exactly. what what they're presented with? Exactly. And so if you have somebody there that needs a different type of care or a different type of support, do does that mean then we have to challenge the justice system at a different point in time to ensure that they're not putting um, men or women who um, have severe mental health needs into the prison system? I think it's a lot of things. I definitely think we have to look at the courts and what's happening in the courts. I'm not a judge and I, I don't know what happens in the courts and none of us do and I think that's the issue. But like, I, I can imagine that what's happening if you look at the community and how little services we have in relation to mental health and drug addiction and all of those kind of things. You know, they're being faced with, you know, this person needs a lot of help and there's nowhere to put them and they absolutely shouldn't be sending them to prison. But prison is being used as that, as that space. It's the dumping ground, quite literally. Mm. That's I think that's how the, the Committee for the Prevention of Torture described it as a dumping ground for people with mental health issues. Mm. So, you know, I, I, it's something that's happening in the courts and it's something that's, it's, it's a lack of something in the community. So the services are not there in the community to refer people to in the first place and they're, they're falling through the cracks. So when people, when they're coming back in and out of the courts because of their mental health or the, their addiction issue, the judges are going, oh, okay, this isn't working. <laughs> um, I'm, I've no I've nowhere to refer them to. Like there's nowhere to send them in the community. The central mental hospital is absolutely busting at the seams. So they're going to go to prison and they'll wait there to go to the central mental hospital. Now, I'm just saying that I think this is what's happening. We don't actually know and this is the problem and we need to find out. So we need to have that more open, transparent conversation. Without, because I think if people think they're going to get blamed for something, they'll get defensive and then keep those doors closed. But it's like trying to find a way that we go, no, let's just pull this out and have this conversation. Another thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that we all know that drugs get in and out of the prisons, right? Mm. But yet we still don't have access, say, to like safe paraphernalia and stuff mm-hmm. in the prison system. Is there any work that you have kind of looked at in, in, in that area? Or Yeah, no, I'm really glad thoughts? you brought that up yeah. because that's something that, like, I suppose, for my previous work where analithia around harm reduction will be very important to me. And I suppose when I came into IPRT, the first thing I wanted to know about was like, you know, how does drugs operate in the context of the prison? And they were like, OK, relax there, Jane. <laughs> but um, so and it's something that featured like very, I suppose, very like con- I was very concentrated on PIPs this year because I, I was just fascinated by how bad it was, to be honest. So like if you look at our national drug strategy, it's called Reduce and Harm Support and Recovery, right? That has its issues in and of itself. If you look at our prison um, drug strategy published in 2006, <laughs> it's called Keeping Drugs Out of Prison. You know, so there's the discrepancy between the community and the prison already. One is reducing harm support and recovery. One is about controlling drug supply, you know. And then when you look at the, the policy itself, it has three principles. 
which to be honest, they're, they're in t- like one, two, three, they're fine. The fourth one is control and supply, keeping drugs out of prison, zero tolerance. You know, that's basically the, the fourth principle. And then the second and third principle are around communicating about your drug use and communicating your uh, your problem and, you know, getting support. And then the third one is around like treatment and, you know, supporting people. So <laughs> two and three completely contradict number one, because if, if you have a zero tolerance attitude towards drugs in prison and you're controlling supply all the time people are not going to talk about their drug use openly and people are not going to seek support so that's the policy has is an issue in itself and then you look like I suppose at drug treatment in prison and I suppose the main issue there is we just don't know so nobody talks about it so this year for PIPs it wasn't looked at in 2020 last year in the COVID in the COVID-19 edition of PIPs in the previous year in 2019 you know and I have to say this and I'm I'm not just saying it because it's being recorded but the Irish Prison Service are very good in terms of we ask them for information and they have it they will give us information like when we send in requests um, it should be publicly available you know everybody should have access to it but they do get back with information especially on things that they have readily available and in 2019 you know we asked the question and some of them were answered and some of them weren't. This year, we asked the question again. Some of them were answered, some of them weren't. And one, I suppose, that was answered, which was really interesting, was that there's no needle exchange at all in prison. But they don't have a needle exchange programme. And they don't have kind of, you know, other harm reduction interventions. Um, I'm going to get the word wrong now. You can help me with the pronunciation. Naloxone. naloxone. <laughs> I always pronounce yeah. it wrong. The naloxone came up a little bit, actually, yeah. because... Some of the lads were talking about all the suicide prevention training that they're doing peer to peer stuff. Yeah. So I was like, Are you talking about naloxone? Mm. And they were like, No, tell me more about that. So they were really interested mm-hmm. in the idea of themselves or somebody on the landing or even the guards yeah. being trained and supplied with naloxone. Of course. In in case of yeah. overdose. And what came up actually, which was scary, is that if someone overdoses, someone they don't alert the prison guards because they're actually frightened to draw attention to the fact that maybe there was drugs on the scene or is it their cell that the overdose has happened in so actually to empower peers to actually know how to intervene in an overdose beyond just a recovery position Um, and naloxone actually is something that we were chatting with in the conversations around drug use so it seems like there's people within the prison like as in prisoners within the prison that would be quite happy to be trained up and in terms of naloxone but it it is that thing like that if your policy is outdated let's be honest Mm. and if your policy as its first principle promotes a zero tolerance attitude like Mm. how are you going to promote harm reduction you know it just completely contradicts it and how are people going to feel comfortable to then you know call when someone's having an overdose you know what I mean that's even only that's in relation to drug use but I don't think there's even any access to condoms in the prison system so that's yeah so that's very basic now that's a question actually we we didn't ask and it's very interesting so I'll definitely note that one Um, very interesting actually but um yeah, so like I suppose when it comes back to the harm reduction point, you do get an naloxone on leaving prison, which I find a bit strange <laughs> because it's kind of acknowledging that, um, again, this is my interpretation of it, that, you know, you don't need it in here because there's no drugs in here. You're not on drugs in here. But when you get back out to the community, you're going to be. So here's an naloxone. overdose. So, so it's just, yeah. to me, it's just such a disconnect there. Um, and then in terms of other drug treatment, you know, and data and what we know. This is a real issue. We don't know how many people in prison are actually using drugs. We don't know how problematic their drug use is. We don't know the type of drug use. We don't know anything about it because there's no research been done. The last piece of research that has really been like carried out in depth was in 2005 and it looked at mental health and addiction, you know, as two issues together. 
um, and the Irish Prison Service and the Department of Justice and IPRT even at one point, we all were using the statistic from that report, which was 70% of people um, in prison are using drugs mm-hmm. or have a problem. I think it was uh, I think it was a substance misuse problem. And, and the thing is, the problem is not just isolated then mm-hmm. to the prison system yeah. because in so many cases, there's women like in their 60s and their 70s having to go and pay for those drugs Absolutely. in the community mm-hmm. because it's not that it's not yeah, free drugs. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, so yeah. like, and, and not that there's, and not even in a sense that there's intimidation for that, but that there's, there's families, I suppose, that are worried about their loved ones in mm-hmm. prison. They know their prison, the, the loved one has accessed drugs, um, but them drugs have to be paid for. So yeah. in many cases, families that are already struggling are then having to go and meet and pay for those pressure. drugs yeah. on the outside as well. Like, you know, so it's a... And it's not intimidation, but if you're putting yourself in debt to buy drugs for somebody in prison or to buy drugs in general you're putting yourself in debt it's debt bondage so it's kind of a form of coercive control because that person now has control over you because you owe them money it's like anything you know what I mean that is a form of control so it's really really horrible and then you're kind of being controlled by the person in prison because of the guilt and you know all the other issues like we look at we've all been there you love to go are you safe are you all right exactly so you're waiting every day for your six minute phone call to know if they're all right and then you have the pressure of having to bring them into the prison you know and of course like I'm not here saying that you know <laughs> of course don't bring drugs into prison like uh, I'm not promoting that but people are obviously bringing drugs into prison because otherwise there wouldn't be such big you know there wouldn't be so so such harsh restrictions around controlling them coming in um but like there has to be a more holistic approach to it you know there has to be a way of you know knowing which families are going to be out in the community having to you know buy drugs and having you know being intimidated or if not intimidated being controlled and being pressured and about reaching out to those families and seeing if there's anything else that can be done and seeing if you can work with the person in prison around their their issue and you know like there has to be some sort of communication between not just the prison but the prison and the community like the community has so much information Mm. that's the that's the thing like people who work in the community are the people who are trusted you know what I mean your regular Joe from the local drug service or the local youth service like these are the people that know what's going on for families these are like you go and talk to them or your local GP you know these are the, like these are the people that have the stories and the information so it's about communicating with them and finding out how you can support people you so know? I've always found with a lot of the pe- people that I've worked with over the years or even with friends that are leaving the prison system and mm. there's a reluctance for them then to engage sometimes in their local drug service right okay. um, for many reasons maybe they're just trying to avoid people that they don't want to use or they've managed to get their use under control while they were in or for various different reasons. And I always wondered then, like, you know, are we missing a trick in terms of how many services we let into the prison so that you're not just getting out of prison and then having to create a whole new relationship with another institution or another service, but that actually um, that communities have much more access to the provision of service that's provided within the prison. So I know we've prison links workers, but yeah. sometimes they even find it hard and that's a visit. Like I, I think we'd be much better if we had outreach workers in every community that also spent times in, time in prison, but not on a visit. Like in the school, in the, you know, yeah. in the games room, at meal times mm. that are act as bridge and links so that when you come out of prison, your outreach worker has spent time with you in prison 
And now they can spend time with you outside of prison in the community, in the drug service. Do you know what I mean? And it's like on that, it's been widely accepted that bringing the community into the prison and vice versa, letting people come out of prison for periods of time to like be in community services and engage in employment or engage in courses that actually supports reintegration and helps people to, I don't like using the word rehabilitate, but to We had that that conversation. (laughs) And then like, see, language changes so often as well. And I never really did like the word, but uh, yeah, it supports people reintegrating and yeah. like, you know, I suppose, staying out of prison, you know, the kind of way, not reoffending. So there's no reason why we don't, do, why we shouldn't do it. And I, I'm pretty sure that we do have services that operate within the prison. But Lynn, it comes back to this information thing again. We just don't know how many, we don't know which ones. And it would be great. Like we could applaud them if we knew. We could say that's great. That's great work. I don't think there are that many. You know, I know the Irish Red Cross go in there and um, Merchants Key uh, went in there at one point. Anna Liffey did previous work in the prisons. And Solace um, do a little bit. Solace do a bit in yeah. the prisons. And then you've got like your your services that are not drug services, you know, like that go in, release and um, AVP and stuff like that. But like there's no, like there should be nearly like a, you know, like Brass Monkey and the way they outline all of the services that like in the country for people mm. who use drugs. There should be like some sort of a magazine or something that says, this is the work we've done in the prison this year. Like a simple thing, like communicating that with us because otherwise it just feels like we're, we're kind of, are we barking up the wrong tree? Are we trying to work on an issue that's already been addressed? Like you, they're probably doing all this great work and we don't know. So mm. it's about tell us if there is anything being done and if there isn't, then we've loads of ideas. You know, mm. like, like listen to all these great ideas, they're simple. But it's because we don't know, like it's really hard to kind of, like what you were saying there, that could be actually being carried out, there could be services allowed in. Exactly. But we don't know We can't it. point to it. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but definitely there needs to be more. You're, you're spot on. Um, so, so something else that came up a little bit as well um, that I've thought about a lot uh, over the years um, because I've tried to support people with it or I've had direct experience mm-hmm. of it is when a loved one dies when yeah. you're in prison. Mm-hmm. So it might not be your dad or your mom, and in many cases it is, or a direct family member. But like what was pointed out in the prison as well, that sometimes somebody has been raised by their nanny because yeah. there's drug use in the family or their parent was also mm-hmm. in addiction or you've been raised by an aunt. or And um, I suppose, I know in some cases prison prison does allow you to go to some funerals. It dep- very much mm-hmm. depends I'm not sure how they do the risk assessment on who can and who can't. But I always wonder what damage that does to somebody's ability to grieve in um, a healthy way, right? I know grief is terrible, but there is a healthy way to grieve and a way to be able to say your goodbyes or have that closure, you know. But do you think there's there's some sort of rights-based approach there to be able to actually, you know, I attend think, funerals yeah so temporary release like everybody has the right to, to some form of temporary release you know um, the issue is well, I suppose what, what it's, what's blamed on and we don't know enough about it is you know drug, the drugs the drugs issue again so it's like you know it's no problem that this person is getting out for a funeral but they might be intimidated to carry drugs back into the prison or they might just re-engage with you know their old behaviours if they were in you know involved in the so drug it's a market. real blanket assumption it's rather... a real blanket assumption mm. rather than kind of a yeah like a tailored approach mm. and it's kind of it comes back to the, the drug control issue you know again so like you'd be surprised how much it seeps into every piece of prison life like it mm. seeps into temporary release for funerals it, it seeps into temporary release for anything it seeps into visits and how people are treated on visits it seeps into how the regimes work and how much out of cell time people get and how the prison staff are like stretched to bits because they have to manage overdose and out of cell time with people who are rivals in prison and keeping people on restrictive regimes because they don't feel safe. So it comes back to like, if drugs is such a huge issue, 
and we're why are we approaching it in this way you know like so it's about looking at new approaches that might alleviate some of the stress on everybody not just the people in prison but like the people working in prison and the people in the community and their families and they're just it it, it does come back to drug control because that's what it's often blamed on when people can't get out just like that it's also obviously blamed on behavior in prison but again like does behavior really play a role when someone's family relatives after dying you know like the, like totally. you have to ask yourself like that fundamental question of like how important is it that some you know that someone is punished when someone's after dying <laughs> yeah so, so i think um i think we've covered so yeah, much there yeah. and i think um but i think even though there's so many different um facets of this conversation and complexities mm. to how we uh taken and account for I suppose justice and safety and Mm. you know uh, impact on victims and future crime and there's all these different players and stakeholders in this conversation and it's so wide and um, and then there's also that needs to be underpinned by a rights based approach regardless Mm -hmm. of all of those other things but I think what I'm taking from this conversation is that we can't even begin to uh, engage and uh, progress any of those issues if we don't have a greater insight and understanding to what happens in the prison system. Exactly. And I do hope that it's a it's a sign that like when the Irish Prison Service supported this initiative mm. and especially me who's so vocal on <laughs> prison reform, yeah. I felt very honoured that they were going to trust me with that. I'm optimistic now. I'm very optimistic now. That I'm hoping that that's Mm. a sign that we're saying, they're saying, yes, we've a long way to go and yes, we still need to be a prison because we're a prison. (laughs) But um, maybe we need to start being a little bit more uh, front facing and this this is where we're at and this is, you know, and and somehow find ways between the justice system pre-prison And then communities and then organisations like yourself and then policymakers to find a way to actually have really open, honest conversations about uh, prison and how we do prison in Ireland. I know. And it's it's very interesting because all of these kind of great ideas that you've kind of thrown around and like the the policy issues that you've, you've pointed out, like these could be issues that are being worked on. And we don't need to be going down that road. We could be focused on other issues, you know. So where do we, like, we only have so much bandwidth. Where do we, where do we focus? So if there was more transparency, we would know, okay, that's being covered now. That's been worked on. We'll actually focus on this one, <laughs> you know. So it's about efficiency as well and really getting things done for people. You know, people who have no rights, people who are literally like, they've no control over their lives, you know, and it's up to us kind of to try and support them. So transparency is key because we'll really know we can get to the, the core of the problem then and, and find out what the real issue is so yeah all it's brilliant it's, it's fantastic so I really I can't wait to hear what pe- what people's issues really are I like that thing around life skills I like that thing around sentence management and temporary release and like hopefully that then drives our work and like we can refocus then because again without the information we don't know what to focus on really you know we're just kind of we're, we're guessing yeah <laughs> and even though we cover that in some of the conversations I think for me, I think societies and societies' biases and assumptions and discriminations, um, and we, we, you know, uh, Governor Mullins, um, in his time, it was talked about the role that the media plays as well, um, in kind of rolling out that kind of narrative. Um, I think what I'm taking when when you talk then about the lack of transparency, and then he talks about I suppose the media's profiling of things. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to go well. Is that what the fear is? If we're too transparent here, 
what way do the media then report on all this stuff that's happening in prison? So are we yeah. closing ranks because we have no control over what that narrative looks like? And we're trying to protect like communities or, you know, employees or families or victims and all these types of things. So they're just like, we need to be somewhat closed because actually... So then there's a responsibility on ethical reporting yeah. from a media perspective course, as well yeah. for this to work in an open dialogue, you know. Yeah, we all have to literally work together on it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, it's that thing of, you know, if information gets out, do you kind of close ranks and let the information just go away by itself and, you know, hope that the story changes and goes on to somebody else? Or do you fight information with information? And it's two different types of people that'll take two different types of approach. And the IPS, you know, and mm. the Department of Justice obviously have their own approach. And like, that's not to say it's the wrong one, you know. It's just two different ways of dealing with it. Um, and the media is insidious at times and I don't think that that's ever going to go away and I'm, I hate to sound pessimistic <laughs> so it's about like what can we control you know fight information with information that's where I'm going to leave that conversation room there's a small window that we would open sometimes to let some air in but when you look outside that small window you're looking out onto one of the two yards I think it's two anyway but it's one of the yards and you only get I think a half an hour on the yard and obviously people want daylight they want air they want the sun they want the sky obviously it is tough to imagine that the only access to that that some people have is walking around this concrete yard in a circle. It actually reminds you of, you know, when you had yard time in school and you reach that age where you don't play anymore. So you're like, no, I'm not playing. That's for babies. Like, you know, so you're not, you're not skipping anymore. You're not doing hopscotch. You're not doing chasing. You're kind of too cool for that now. So you literally walk around in a circle with your friends for the whole half an hour that you have. I suppose the difference is that that's not your only access to daylight, but that's just what it reminded me of when I looked out onto the yard from that window, is just just this repetitive circle around and around and around and around. And this being their only access to the yard or to daytime. And then up above them is a net, like a big giant fishing net, like kind of, well, with much smaller uh, kind of holes in it and that net is up over there to stop drugs coming over the wall and through the net but people are resourceful as you'll hear throughout the podcast and drugs obviously do make it into the prison but the net is literally encasing the whole yard so even though you can see the sky there's still a net between you and the sky which again is, I suppose, not the best way to experience the only bit of sunlight or the only bit of daylight that you have in your day. So welcome, first of all, and I'm delighted that you've agreed to, to chat to me today. Um, so I know it's a bit of an, an odd environment for, uh, you know, to be sitting down and, and doing a podcast and to feel comfortable and to feel, I suppose, a level of tr- a trust, I suppose, in the person that's chatting to you. Um, so I hope you feel kind of comfortable enough maybe to 
um, just give me a little bit of insight into who Joe is, who mm -hmm. you are, you know, um, and a little bit about, yeah, just about where you've come from and, and who you are. So I grew up in East Wall, um, had a mother and father, and uh, like every childhood, there was domestic abuse, alcoholism, and that did seem to define my life going forward. Court cases, custody battles, so stuff like that. From the from the from the offset that from was the offset that was kind of define my childhood. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any positive memories from your childhood? Um. Yeah. My father, sisters. Yeah. A lot of support. Yeah. Yeah. And did you play any any clubs or anything or? Just did a bit of boxing. Bit of boxing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? About going to boxing and. It was just mainly to get us off the streets. We were acting, acting the maga, yeah. not doing too much, drinking on corners. And uh, Matt Talbot from East Wall opened up a boxing club and it was going for maybe a year, two years, and then it just stopped. And what what, what was that like when something that was having a positive impact? It was, people, it was getting people off the streets. Yeah. But like, you don't know, when you're that age, you don't know why it stopped. And it's only when you're older you realise funding wasn't available. And uh, coming from the north inner city, it was just forgotten about just forgotten about yeah. and did you have no other positive kind of outlets then once that closed well no there was a chap called Paul Dowling who used to do canoeing okay. East Wall Water Sports so he used to bring us off canoeing all the time and where did you go where did you do that the River Tolka Glass okay. Heaven stuff brilliant like that. Cavern tell us a little bit about that then about canoeing and us being part of a club And well it was Maureen O'Sullivan uh, the TD yeah. she set up the Kilnacraw House she was on the board of that, so they would take teenagers from the North Inner City and bring them down to Cavan for a weekend. And you would just do, um, would you do comp canoeing competitions or was it more just no, like just leisurely? More leisurely. Yeah. Yeah, more leisurely. And you enjoyed that? I did. Yeah. And then you said um, that life growing up, you feel like it defined you somewhat. So in terms of what that meant for for you, say, as a, as, a, as a young lad going to school and stuff, did you, were you able to concentrate in school given everything that was happening for you? No. No? I was kind of class clown, acting a maggot, um, getting suspended, thrown out, wanting to get thrown out. Just couldn't concentrate in school. We lived across from the park and I was mad into motorbikes and all I could hear all day was motorbikes. Whether it be stolen or, or bought bikes, I just wanted to be there. That's what I wanted. So when you got thrown out of school, is that where you'd go? No, I, I didn't get thrown out of school. Uh, when I was suspended, I used to go to the field and just listen to the bikes, play the bikes, get shots of the bikes, stuff like that. And why? Did, tell us a little bit about your, your interest for bikes. Just East Wall had a scrambling course. People were going up. Uh, Paul Boyle from North Wall used to have jet skis and scramblers, and that was just an ambition. So I walked in the truck yard to save up a few bobs to buy one. Okay. And why was it an ambition? Did you want to just, in terms of, did you want to compete on, on bikes or? Well, that was the dream, wasn't it? But, like, when you come, you haven't got the funding, you're not going to progress like that. Tell me a little bit about the dream. Like, what would have been your ideal situation with the bikes? I would have been a motocross racer. Yeah. That was the childhood dream. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. And how, how does it feel to not have, like, you obviously cared enough and had enough of a passion about bikes but obviously money or funding and things like that got in the way. Um, what does that do, I suppose, to a young lad that has a dream and then that dream is gone? Like, what, what impact does that you, have? You just change direction, don't you? 
like I just I don't know I used to cycle the walk I was walking in a wood factory over in Harold's Cross and a fella from the area seen me cycling boy he, he just asked me one day do you want to do an apprenticeship plastering so I just kind of gave up the bikes and just went into doing plastering work yeah. Okay and did you still keep doing bikes as a hobby or On the side yeah 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 Yeah. And then what what age were you when you left school? I was about just after the junior service maybe 12, 13 have you any valuable memories from school or any positive people? <laughs> yeah, there was a few good teachers there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any memories specifically of them or? There was a science teacher. Uh, I can't th- think of his name now, but uh, he was always trying to stay in the right direction. They'd kind of know like you've, you're coming from a troubled background and now you're trying your best and they were just trying to encourage you. Stuff yeah. like that. And you remember that? Yeah. yeah. What did you do after school? Just on the apprenticeship last one. Mm. Just, that was it then. Yeah. And then, have you any other, like, you know, when you said that, you said, like, something really big, what, which was the experiences that you had in the house defined you. Can you tell me a little bit about, not necessarily the stuff that's happened, but, like, the impact that, like, the, the memories that you have as a young child growing up and how they impacted you being able to just follow your dreams or concentrate in school to give me a little picture of who you were as a young kid yeah, your personality when, when I say it to find me like I would witness my father attacking my mother and I would grab my older sister and my younger brother and I'd be putting them in a wardrobe saying listen it's grand stay there so that protective factor I took forward into later life and it's just it's kind of got me into trouble trying to defend people that are being bullied and then you're seen as the bully so through therapy I've learned that you have to focus on yourself and not too many on other people. Yeah, so you were the protector in the house? I was the protector in the house. If something happened on the street to do with my sister and my brother, yeah. I'd be out in the street fighting, what have you. Were you the eldest? No, second oldest. Second oldest. And what's your relationship now with your siblings? I have a great relationship with them. Yeah? Yeah. 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 And do you get to, how do you, how do you maintain a positive relationship with your siblings when you're when you spend like when you've been in prison for so long is it hard to keep well, I, think, I think we've been through a lot together as as a tree like my father committed suicide when I was 12 okay just before the junior cert and yeah so I remember my uncle saying listen you're the man of the house now and I literally took that literally so a lot of pressure on a on a 12 year old totally a lot of pressure yeah. on a 12 year old so you went from being a carer to your siblings yeah. to then being the actual man of the house. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a lot for any young person to deal with. But it's been given back in spades then by my sister, you know, she's seen who I was then, who I am now, and she's just yeah. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with your sister. She's just a a rock, honest to God. I couldn't have done this sentence without her. She supported me all the way through. And the same for my brother, you know, and I have a young son out there. And they've just reared him since he was probably nine months. Wow. Yeah. So that valuable relationship between somebody that's in prison and somebody that's at home, does that have an impact, do you think, on other pr- people that are in prison that don't have any family looking out for them? Like how, how you know, you, you spoke about being engaged in the therapeutic process and, you know, working on your mental health and all those things. What would it mean to not have a person that, that supports you? Oh, very sad. I'd imagine it's very sad. You see a lot of it around the jail, you know, people isolating themselves. You know, walking up for a shop party, and we see a fella that has support outside walking away with a big bag. A fella that has no support walking up and maybe walking away with a shower gel and soap. 
Explain that to me, actually, because that's quite visual. So (coughs) being able to tell the difference between who has somebody communicating with them and supporting them, you can tell by literally the shop they do with the tuck shop, is it? More or less, yeah. Right. And what's what what in terms of you being in here then, um, do you support any of the other lads or what do you do to kind of pass your time in here? Just peer to peer, like in the gym, you know. We used to do the SOS suicide of survive here in the prison. It doesn't happen really anymore. But they used to teach people do the rap program, wellness recovery action planning. So you'd be just in groups talking about understanding depression, anxiety, who to see, who to speak to, who to seek support off. And that was a big thing in the prison. And it, it kind of left the prison before the pandemic. So. And probably needed it in the pandemic more than, more more than anything. Not, yeah, because look, I, I found it difficult and I have great support, but I found it really difficult. So yeah. I'd imagine if I didn't have support, it'd be really, really hard. So you mentioned your dad, um, died by suicide when you were yeah. when you were quite young how has that impacted you then and here in terms of like doing the training is it was it was it quite hard to do the training and talk about suicide so much when you you'd experienced it as such a young child as such it a was a bit child. emotional um discussing it but like as you say no one knows why people commit suicide and it's that long in question of why 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 so it's not about trying to find the answer to that it's just kind of trying to understand it so you just learn to live with it rather than chase the answer of why it happened. Mm. And it was difficult talking about it in groups, but I think m- me talking about it in the group, other people start opening up then, and you were kind of building this community of support in the prison. And then before before you before you ended up in here, um, like as a young person dealing with, I suppose, like you mentioned, being able, having to deal with domestic violence, having to deal with suicide in the home and all those difficulties that you had, um, do you deal with stress different now as a man than you than you did as a teenager? What way would you have dealt with, with stress as a young teenager? More avoidant. I would have been avoidant. Like going back to that divorce case, like we had to go see psychologists as kids and decide who was gonna go live with who, that type of stuff. And that crossed over into the prison system then when I was dealing with psychologists. I just couldn't trust them. Because I just remember being asked that question, who do you want to live with? It's A or B, and so when I was dealing with psychology, I was always in conflict with them. But then, I don't know, something just happened, something just clicked, and I found a psychologist that was just, you just get on with them. And, uh, yeah, shit just happened. Mm. I think that's a really important point, actually, if we can maybe think or talk about that for a moment, is that as a young person who has had authority in their life in such a negative way, right down to, like, choose a parent. Yeah. Um, how how do you begin to trust authority at all? It was a process, I'm not going to lie. Like, 18 years in jail, it was, like, it took about 10 years before it literally sunk in like that. This person sitting across me was trying to help me, you know, manage difficult emotions, you know. So I was angry, angry at the world, angry at myself, you know. And this person was teaching me, look, it's okay to be angry as long as you don't act on it. So just understanding that anger is okay. How did it feel to have someone understand you after all them years? Yeah, it was it was relieved. I was relieved. Yeah. You've mentioned the word relief a few times. Um, 
which fe- it seems like a bit of a throwaway word, but it's actually really like it's really standing out to me. It's like, well, to be relieved of something just means that, you know, you're, you're somebody must be carrying a lot to feel relief. You know, it's like, you know, being taken out from under a rock. You know what I mean? Do you feel that you have moved into a space in your life now where you don't have to seek out things? To, like, do you feel permanently relieved now or do you still feel in any way, you know, judged or feel that anger you talked about, difficult emotions? I feel relieved because I was able to let go of going to Blackrock Clinic and discuss who, who, which parent I was going to choose. You know, now I, like, I would be dead against custody battles. I'd, I'd rather focus on mediation, like two people trying to settle the differences without courts because at the end of the day, it is the kids that get affected. Yeah, and that's a really good point, that mediation. Yeah. Does a lot of mediation happen in the prisons to, to be able to uh, manage conflict in a prison setting? Yeah, you would, do you do a lot of that AVP here as well? What does AVP mean? Alternative to Violence Programme. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and did you do one of I those I've done it in the, in the early stages and uh, became a facilitator, but then you just move on to different courses and pass that leadership on to somebody else to yeah. keep it going. Yeah. So when you, when we talk about saying that relief in terms of being able to let go, what happened as as a young person and as a child, was it being able to let go that I suppose that you had no control over that and that actually you were just a child? Yeah, that's because you can have a tendency to focus on the uncontrollables, you know, and it'll just keep you bitter and held back. And looking back, yeah, that was a process they had to go through at the time. And. That was advice they were probably going at the time, so, mm. yeah. So tell me about then your day-to-day now. So you, you like going to the gym, but do you come into the school then to do subjects? I used to do subjects in the school. For the, I started doing the Open University, and I just that kind of kept me away from the school for I would come up the other time for a discrimination class or, you know, classes that were kind of short-term, courses that were kind of short-term, but going to the school every day, no. Tell me a little bit about the Open University. It was difficult. Lucky enough, for the first two years I had to do it on a prison computer over there. And it was difficult because you come up and sometimes your stuff would be gone off. So you'd have to start again. So it was always keeping notes, keeping notes, keeping copies. And then the third year, then I got the laptop. So I was expecting to go to the open prison. I wasn't expecting to do another psychology course. So I kind of dropped out to Open University to focus on the psychology course. And is that what you've studied for the three years, is the psychology? Yeah, I've done walking and learning and sport and fitness and then um, managing sport management and sport psychology. And how, I, I, I don't think, you know, study is difficult at the best of times, but I think, how do you think you find the the will and the determination to be able to study in such a hard setting when you're, like you're saying, you didn't have a laptop at first or when you're having to take notes and... Um, there must have been a, an extreme amount of, you know, determinism in you to, to, well, to make does, that happen. You, you know yourself, if you've done any study, it takes a lot of commitment, you know, and there's a lot of distractions in the prison system. You could easily drop the books there and, you know, but the Brent, Brendan, Karen and Sonia and all them would be on to straight away, like, to try to get you back on track. So have you graduated from that course now? I got the HG and then I done my third year, so I've got another year to go. That's all I wanted to do to get the diploma. Brilliant. So they said I can do it in Shelton Abbey. How does how does it feel to have the education now that you weren't able to access as a young person? Yeah, it's a great achievement. 
Yeah. Do you yeah. feel that achievement though? I do feel that achievement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you should. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of then, um, you know, obviously you've been you've been here a long time, but in the beginning, you know, at what stage of a prison sentence does somebody begin to like reflect and engage in education and be able to? Is it is it a maturity thing, or? It is a maturity thing, but it'd be more down to. Uh, peer pressure like if you're going to the yard every day you know walking the yard being in gangs that's kind of like a protective factor for some people and then if you decide to go to school people would say what are you going to school for so you just have to push past that and just come up here because when you do come up here you do find yourself and you do mature like as you said and you can do anything in the school the teachers are great support how important is the school setting to the, pr- to the prison oh very important you know, I'd say there'll be a lot more trouble, a lot more violence if there's no school in the prison. And why do you think then that a lot of other people don't come up when they see, like, role models like yourself and some of the other lads kind of really engaging in the education sector? Do you think it's Do you think it's because they've had such negative experiences in I'd the say past? It's an anti-authority thing. They probably see the teachers as their prison officers and their prison staff. When the teachers aren't at all, they're independent of the prison system. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's just a lack of understanding the relationship. Just Yeah, look, I remember when I, before I ever done any university, I used to be always on nights for getting caught with phones and Brenda would be coming down, putting stuff into my cell on nights. So I'd be doing the homework in my cell. And that's how I got interested in school. Because someone cared to go out and check where, where I was at. Yeah, and yeah. did you feel like before that... Not many people cared about what happened to you, apart from obviously no, your care No, because I was anti-establishment, wasn't it? I was against yeah. the prison system. I was pissed off at having to do psychology every week, pissed off at having to see probation. It was just a process you had to go through as a life sentence prisoner. And I was just seeing too many people on a weekly basis and it was just wrecking my head, so I just kind of went off. Violence, trouble, violence. And then that's all stopped now. That's all stopped now, thank God. Yeah. yeah. How, how how does that make a person feel about themselves to step away from negative behaviour? Like, apart, I know you said earlier on you felt relief, like, but are you sometimes surprised at where you are now? Yeah, because like, if someone says to me, I would want to shut up a phone, I would say no, because I know I'm still in prison over phones. Mm-hmm. So the, having the power in myself to say, no, I don't want to shut that phone. So you'd say you have a lot of self-control now? A lot of self-control now, yeah. Yeah. So what 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 are your hopes when you're when you when you go home? As a life sentence prisoner, look at I spent over half my life in prison, so you know there's a lot of opportunity there when I go home, but uh, I haven't decided yet to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But if if it, without a decision, like, do you are you, are you worried about going home? I'm not worried about going home. No. 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 So you you feel you feel confident in in. I feel in confident in that you've done I think all I can survive on the outside. Yeah. What do you miss most about home? Good food. Good food. Decent bed. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favourite food? What food are you hoping for? Uh, just a nice mammy stew, isn't it? Aww. Yeah. An old stew. Do you, put, do you put brown sauce in your stew? I do. Chef? No, HP. Ah, <laughs> no! <laughs> Nobody's perfect. So you're looking forward to a stew and a nice bed. A nice bed, yeah. Yeah. I've never been that. All I do is rap. All I know is me. All I know is that. All I know is lifers. All I know is this. All I know is jail. 
All I know is the bin. Conversations on the Margins is a limited series podcast produced by me, Lynn Rowan, and the team at Alfonso Films, in partnership with Go Loud and funded by the Rhone Trust, with the support of the IPS and Governor Eddie Mullins. We would like to thank the Irish Penal Reform Trust for all the support in making this podcast happen. Sound on Location was recorded by Dave Fannin and Rob Moore, with editing and sound design by Kieran O'Connor. The music used in this series is written and performed by students in the Educational Centre in Weefield Prison. I would also like to thank the principal and teachers in the Education Centre of Weefield Prison for facilitating this podcast and for all your support. Finally, and most importantly, I would like to thank each and every one of the men who sat down with me, opened up and had a very real conversation. I know it wasn't easy, but I'm very grateful. You'll find conversations on the margins forced every Tuesday on the Go Loud app and all major podcast platforms too. 17 years, fed up with this shit, because I never had a chance. Even from a kid, foster care, children's homes, put me in the local home, came from a broken home, never had a mobile phone, jacking, mobile phones, jacking, that's all I know. Because I never had a bone, pot to piss in, no home, never had nowhere, got a lot, don't care. Just let go, stop lying to yourself, oh yeah, be yourself, no one else, you can do this if you want to, look inside yourself, look inside yourself, be that, you can really, really be that, used to be in the trap, now I speak that, yeah, and I'm off.